Hello, welcome. I'm Dr. John Riccio, the Medical Director for South Metro Fire Rescue. I am here today with Brian McCoy. Hi everyone, I'm Brian McCoy with EMS Training. I'm happy to have the opportunity to sit and talk with Dr. Riccio today. Today we're going to be discussing high-performance CPR, something that I believe you've just undergone training with, Brian, is that correct? Yes, we've been doing training most of the year working towards this, and I think we've got some exciting changes coming up here. We've uh, transitioned away from pit crew CPR, and over the year, the last cycle we had, we introduced high-performance CPR. This tr last training cycle that's currently going on that finishes tomorrow, we're emphasizing some of those points and, and really trying to solidify some habits. Um, we've identified some things that, that we could work on that we can improve. I think we have a really exciting opportunity for our community to improve our CPR performance. Um, and it's a great transition for us. So we, we do have uh, agency-specific protocol we're looking to roll out in January with our ACLS and our CPR recertification. Oh, that's great. As the medical director, I'm very excited about that. And want to thank you for all the work you do in training. You guys do a great job. Um, I think in terms of the high-performance CPR, I think it is critical uh, for good outcomes. And I'm glad we're, we're spending all this time on it. It's important to know, it seems very simple, and we'll go over some of the basic concepts of it, but it's actually not as easy to pull off as an organization. We've studied uh, actually high-performing organizations in trying to put this into place and how well they did, and the performance of it was about 50% of the time, and they improved over time, but this is not something simple. You're exactly right. Implementing something like this is easier said than done. Um, this is not an original concept. We, we took this from the good folks in King County um, in Seattle Medic One. This is where it was developed, and we've had personal contact with them and gotten some advice and, and talked things over, and uh, you know they, they always talk about a team approach, a system approach, and marginal gains. They, they don't try to change everything all at once, but if you can change one thing just a little bit consistently, before you know it, you look back and the whole system has improved. So we kind of laid the seeds there, or planted the seeds in September, and, and we're looking to build on that. I think another critical point of this whole um, experience is the quality management aspect of it, and I think they proved that in Seattle, that you have to be able to measure what you're doing. Absolutely. And our quality management department does a great job on that, and mm -hmm. we follow every case individually. And I think we'll be able to look at those incremental changes and to be able to see improvement. So that also excites me. Absolutely, and, and what they relayed to me in our conversations is that you can measure tons of data points. There's no call that we run in the field, uh, at least in EMS, that you can measure so many data points from time of call to dispatch to time of compressions, um, rate of compressions, everything we do with the cardiac arrest is measurable. And if you don't measure it, you really can't improve it because you don't know where to start. So I think we've got a really good foundation of where we're at now and we got a good vision of where we're going. Well, let's go ahead and start by just going over some of the, the simple concepts of the high performance CPR, the important matters. Sure. Um, we were doing something called pit crew CPR, and I think it's, it's fair to acknowledge uh, what pit crew CPR was, that way people understand the differences and why we're going towards high performance CPR. Um, and just a quick review of pit crew is based on riding position. If you were the engineer, you had to have the monitor. If you were the officer, you were on the airway. If you were the firefighter, everything was positional. And what we found was folks had a hard time following that based on where equipment was laid out in their rig, um, skill sets and certification levels of providers. They were trying to get the providers in the right spots. And kind of as soon as that plan was put into place, it, it sort of started to unravel. 
The great thing about high-performance CPR is there are still jobs that are assigned, but they're not tied to a seat. So the crew has the flexibility to assign roles based on certification level, ability, where equipment is laid out. It gives us a lot more um, fluidity, but it also gives us performance standards that we can measure. Absolutely, and I think the efficiency is a big part of it. I think when you see it done right, it really looks like a choreographed dance. It is. It really goes well, and you don't uh, forget to do certain parts of it because everybody knows their role, their job, and what the next thing is going to happen in this whole uh, resuscitation. And that's exactly right. So maybe diving into the details a little bit on assignments. So high performance uh, CPR assignments, it's based on the, the three main jobs are uh, compressions is the number one priority. So when we talk about positioning ourselves, position one in this plan is going to be compressions. Position two is going to be the monitor who's going to deliver that shock that gets the heart started. Position three is going to be the airway. And then position four is going to be the IV IO. I know with us, and especially paramedics, we just want to take a needle and stick it in somebody or take an IO and drill it in somebody. But that priority gets pushed down just a little bit. Absolutely. And the way you actually listed it is the right way. Yep. Compressions is what's going to save the patient, right? Mm -hmm. Shocks is the next thing. Defibrillation is going to save the patient's increased survival. And then the IO and airway are a little bit lower down. Mm -hmm. And in the past, you know, we've always thought airway, airway, airway. So this is a change that, that South Metro has embraced. And I think we've seen good results secondary to that. Well, Brian, let's talk a little more specifically about compressions. Uh, yeah, compressions is the number one position. It's a hallmark of CPR. So we're, we're looking for excellent compressions. That means proper depth, proper recoil, which is very important to let the heart empty. Crucial part of compressions. If we're leaning into the patient, we don't get good recoil and good emptying. We're going to be measuring our breaks in CPR. So we don't want any breaks longer than 10 seconds. And we want to minimize the amount of pauses we take. All of those details lead to a higher compression fraction. And our compression fraction is a function of how long the resuscitation is and how long we maintain compressions. So obviously, the more compressions we do, the better off our patients are doing. Absolutely. And when they look at that data, the, the larger that compression uh, fraction, greater than 90%, hopefully, the better the patient's going to do. Yeah. Make just a few comments on the, on the rate in particular. So we go with 100 to 120 mm -hmm. as the rate. And we see sometimes at the beginning of the resuscitation, we're going 140. And I know people will say, oh, you don't want to do 60. You definitely want to be fast enough. But we, we kind of have a little bias of we want to go almost too fast. There's kind of a sweet spot with research to probably about 115. So it's probably a little closer to 120 is better. But, um, you know, 60 or 140 aren't good. 140 is probably just as bad as doing it too slow. Absolutely. And if we go too fast, we don't give the heart time to empty, right? Um, we have a lot of healthy, fit men and women in our fire department. They're energetic, they're motivated, and they're hard chargers. Uh, we very rarely see 60 as a compression rate, but we often see 140 and above because people hit the door and they want to do some good. Um, I think one of the biggest game changers for us and what we're discovering is the use of a metronome. Uh, if you use a metronome, especially in our training, we're, we very rarely see somebody speed up to the tapping of the metronome. Um, we always see them come down to that speed, but they always sync up. It's, it's almost impossible when you're doing CPR to have that ticking going and not sync in. It's just sort of human nature to tap along with it, and we get a much cleaner uh, rate of compression and a much better possible outcome for our patient. Fully endorse the use of a metrodome. Anything that can make it simple and, and 
allow us just to clue into what the, exactly we want to be doing is helpful. And I understand uh, everyone in the department has the Antevi uh, app. Yes. And there's a metronome on that, I believe. Yes, that's one of the great things. And when you dig into the Hantevi app, it's got lots of treasure in there. Um, one of the things we found is when you select your new patient, you scroll all the way down, and it's not just for pediatrics. They have adult sections. When you open up an adult patient, at the top right of your screen, there's a Start CPR button. Um, it gives you a metronome in 30 to 2 and continuous compressions. It lets you enter defibrillations with your energy selections. It also lets you enter your epinephrine doses. All of that is uploadable to ESO, so at the end of the resuscitation, we can put that data right into our EHR. Oh, that's marvelous, that's great. Yeah. In terms of depth, we'll talk a little bit about that. Obviously, two to two and a half inches, and as you mentioned, a lot of our firefighters who are in great shape and are very strong, not too worried about us, uh, uh, maybe not reaching the two to two and a half, but we have to kind of measure it or look at the quality of it real time, what Absolutely. we're doing. So we gotta have people checking for pulses, making sure that there's strong pulses. We should be looking at end tidal CO2. Absolutely. And monitoring that and trying to get that above 10. The higher the better, right? The higher we can go on that, Absolutely. the better we will do. And again, what we've talked about here in terms of compression is owned by BLS, by our EMTs. Absolutely, BLS owns the resuscitation. Um, this is, a cardiac resuscitation is a BLS call until the paramedics arrive, really. Um, until an endotracheal tube is placed or an epinephrine is pushed, this is a, an EMT event. And it should remain an EMT event when the paramedics show up. The paramedics really should be integrating their skills into the resuscitation and adding to it, not um, traditionally, I know personally the way I was raised as a paramedic, um, we like to call a lot of pauses, stop for this, stop for that. We don't want that anymore. We want our EMTs empowered and understanding that the compressions are, are what's gonna save the day and the defibrillation's what's gonna save the day. So when it's time to do compressions, be aggressive, get back on that chest. One thing that we have been looking at with our compression quality is pulse ox and pleth waves. We haven't done a lot of training on it, um, but we're starting to introduce that concept and we plan to introduce that in the future, but the pulse ox is a really valuable tool to measure effectiveness of compressions. Maybe in the near future we'll see, as you guys know, we're doing uh, EMS POCUS, ultrasound in the field, mm -hmm. during cardiac arrest, and one of the things that potentially would improve would be actually pulse checks. If you do a pulse check with, with ultrasound, ultrasound. maybe able to quantify how good the actual movement of the blood uh, uh, is. During compressions? During compressions. That's a so that could be an improvement use. of what we're currently doing. Because the pulse checks is really, it's hard for everybody. I know we all think, oh, it's so easy to just do a pulse check. But they've studied that. Even they, I think they studied it on uh, some kind of specialty surgeons doing it. Mm -hmm. And again, they weren't, there was no correlation between people taking it and the actual blood pressure. It's not, it's not as easy as you think. When that is. patient's moving during compressions, trying to find that femoral pulse, and, and I'm not sure if I feel the patient moving or the pulse going, I, I absolutely 100% agree. Yeah, um, ultrasound's a great tool for that. If you could see that pulse wave in the femoral arteries and correlate it with what you're seeing in your pulse oximetry, uh, that's rock solid CPR confirmation. Absolutely, and we'd feel much better about that real-time feedback, which I think is so critical. Speaking of feedback, the quality management uh, department, mm -hmm. <laughs> Jody and uh, Angie, looking at all these cases in addition to myself, um, it's a very important. If we can measure how we're doing, that's how we get to the next step. That's how we get better. If we don't have accurate measurements, we can't make that step. And I think you were making a plea for kind of mandatory placing the pulse ox and the end tidal CO2 on as soon as possible, even if you're bagging the patient, so Absolutely. that we can get that useful information. 
and measure it? Absolutely. And when you get, we could move on to, to talk a little bit about the monitor, but we want that pulse ox and capnography as soon as we can. What we've seen, I think, and, and it's part of our habits, capnography tends to go on with the endotracheal tube, but we don't see a lot of eye gels and certainly not a lot of bag valve mask with capnography, but there's certainly value in a bag valve mask and it's absolutely critical when you place an eye gel. Um, the pulse ox, it's one of those, personally me, as a medic in the field, it, it didn't seem important, but to demonstrate that it is important and what the value of it is and what it's showing us, I think that's gonna be more in the forefront of people's minds. You mentioned pauses and how critical it is, and that's been studied, well studied, and that the longer the pauses are, the chance of survival goes down significantly. And if we're not doing this in an organized fashion, you can decrease the overall survival by 20%. So the choreography and the teamwork that you're talking about and people knowing the positions they need to be in and their jobs, I think leads to that kind of efficiency and, and the be best outcome with the patient. That also leads to less pauses. Absolutely. And I think that's critical that we continue to do that. The goals in the past have been less than 10 seconds. I'd like to push it even further, less than six seconds if we possibly can. Because as you guys know, as you decrease when you stop doing CPR, the pressure goes back to zero. But to get it back up to where you were before you paused may take minutes. And in that time, the perfusion to the patient is much less than what it was when you were doing CPR. So it is, it's a cr critical concept that we decrease pauses and, and that we all own that. And the person on compressions is, that's the high performance part of high performance CPR, right? And training it and, and getting those pauses. Like you said, we can get those pauses I would say six seconds, sometimes two seconds. When you're doing CPR, it's really vital. One of the concepts we're teaching is hover hands. When you stop compressions, you just lift your hands two inches off the patient's chest, but you are ready to get right back on. Uh, it's not like the old days where you're sitting on your heels and you're sort of taking a break. Your hands hover and you, don't, you shouldn't have to be told by the paramedic. And that's a scar from the paramedics as we always told people start and stop, like there was a switch on their head and really we want Everybody understand, I hover two inches, and when a ventilation happens, it's one, two, back on the chest. If there's gonna be a shock, it's rhythm check, I'm shocking, shock delivered back on the chest. So you're absolutely right, with practice and coordination, we can get those gaps, I think, between two and six seconds is absolutely reasonable. That's great. Some other points for, for compressions, we've got some new gear and training that we can actually measure compressions with a, a simulated monitor that replicates the LifePak 15 it has a puck that we can do CPR on. Uh, and what we find is we can graphically demonstrate how important it is to rotate compressors every two minutes. We have a lot of, like I said, fit people that wanna go out and do a good job and they wanna prove how strong they are and, and how efficient they are and how they can perform. But we can see on the, the readouts, after two minutes, everybody degrades. It really, nobody's doing high quality compressions past two minutes. And that's not a knock on the individuals, um, but it does speak to that coordination, that it's really essential every two minutes we rotate our compressors. And then we have good communication between the people doing compressions, the people rotating, and the people running the monitor. That compressor is the one who's gonna stop for ventilations, they're the one who's gonna stop for defibrillation. So they really need to be dialed into their job and that's another place that app comes in handy, hand heavy, it times out your 30 seconds, it times out your two minutes so you know when your shocks are. Um, we, we've been joking with each other during this training that none of us can count to 200 and I think under stress in that environment, it's really difficult to count to 200 by 30s. Um, that's a tall order for anybody.
Let's move on to monitor, the second position. All right, so in your CPR triangle, and that's how we're, we're setting up our patient care in a triangle, the number two position is gonna be the monitor, and it's in order of priority and in order of work. So, for example, if you only had two people, we're gonna do compressions and the monitor until we get help. So, number two is the monitor. We need to get pads placed. We need to get our, our first defibrillation cycle run, whether it's analyzing in AED mode or just charging in manual mode. And then it's really important for that person to get the pulse ox on as soon as they can. I don't think we should delay a shock in order to get a pulse ox on, but at least after that first shock cycle, I think it's reasonable that we should be seeing that with probably within three minutes. That, that'd be excellent, that's great. I think along with the uh, shock, the only comment I would make there, sometimes we forget about the vectors and changing the vectors when in shockable rhythms, we're unsuccessful in shocking it back into a you know, perfusing kind of rhythm. Mm -hmm. And I think the way I like to try to remember and look at it is everybody's heart sits in their body. Every body type is different in a different way. So the vectors, the actual angles of the heart and the electricity are all gonna be different. So if we just stick with one pad placement and keep it there the whole time, we can actually miss an opportunity to actually shock somebody back to life. And I think it's real important to remember the, the AP uh, placement of the pads has been seen to be maybe even a little bit more successful. So at least I would want you to try using the AP at some point mm -hmm. prior to saying the shocks aren't working on this patient. That's a really great point. Um, and back to the, the BLS nature of running the monitor, this is really an EMT skill and it's a professional skill. And that's what we've been trying to emphasize through training is that everyone in that team should be able to run that monitor, at least get it turned on, get the pads on, make sure you can charge and shock or analyze and shock. Um, one thing we wanna point out and we want people to be aware of is making sure you stop compressions when you analyze because that causes patient movement and it causes a big gap in CPR. Something that we've been training on and the, the other component of running in AED mode is once you hit analyze and a shock is recommended, we want people to get back on the chest for 30 compressions. That gives us a nice full heart to accept that defibrillation and a better chance of converting that rhythm. Absolutely. And then what you had mentioned before and stressed before is hover your hands and be ready as soon as the shock is delivered, get back on the chest. Absolutely. Not wait to analyze or do, do anything else in between. Let's get the perfusion going again. Absolutely. Um, the next part of the monitor is really making sure capnography gets attached. Um, Capnography is a function of the airway, but it's also a function of the monitor because it has to be plugged in. If the capnography sensor is in your monitor and you're able to, after your first shock cycle, get that pulse ox on, plug that capnography in, string it out because you know we're gonna be using it in the future and that way your airway person is set up. Absolutely, and I think we'll get to capnography probably more during the airway, but it's critical for so many things. Recognizing difficulties with the airway, a misplaced ET tube, a malpositioned uh, SGA, superglottic airway, IGEL is what we use here at South Metro. All those things, return of ROSC, right? With, with the uh, dramatic increase of the untitled CO2. I think there's so much, and, and actually we can look at the quality of the CPR, as we mentioned before, with untitled CO2. So it's critical that that monitor, the person doing the monitor position does go ahead and, and place the untitled CO2. And the monitor is one of those places that, that we've seen in training, we're asking people to pre-assign those positions, either in your morning meetings, you can pre-assign positions on the way to the call. We don't want people walking in and trying to decide who's doing what at the patient's side. It just gives us a more effective resuscitation. 
And we found with crews that really haven't embraced that, the monitor is the one that's left out. Everybody gets on compressions, right? That's the dramatic part and the important part of CPR. The airway is the part that we love as paramedics. We want to get on that airway. Um, we tend to go towards the IV instead of the monitor. And it sort of sits in the corner of the room and the team leader often sort of looks at the monitor and they'll say, okay, pre-charge. And there's a lot of gaps in time when somebody else is pushing the buttons at your command. Um, what we're asking people is assign that monitor and you're going to look at it because not only are you looking for the pre-charge, but you're also there to watch those pleth waves. You're there to watch that capnography. You're looking for ROSC. It's a function all of itself that deserves that attention. I'd like to support your comments on uh, the positions and the importance of filling those positions consistently. I think the consistency of high quality CPR depends on it. And I think as an example, let's say you're roving or you're not working with your usual crew. And at that point, you would be un unclear of what job you might be doing. And that would lead to pauses and all, all sorts of complications. In terms of rotation of the positions, any comments on that, Brian? Yeah, the positions are assigned to start a resuscitation, but as we know, compressions, you wear out and you have to rotate. So there is rotation in the resuscitation, we just have to make sure all the jobs are filled. So if we have our top three positions in our CPR triangle of compressions, monitor, and airway, they have to be filled by one person. We, sh we shouldn't have one person doing two jobs because that's where we find gaps in CPR. That's where those 10 second gaps tend to open up. So as a team leader, which we could talk about later, um, when you're a team leader, you should make sure those positions are filled with somebody. And if they're not, and there's only three people in the room, one of those jobs is going to be yours and you're going to have to be that working boss on scene just like on the fire ground. Next we'll talk about uh, airway. This is where we have a major change in how we've done it in the past. In the past, as you know, when we arrived at a resuscitation, we used passive oxygenation. That was based on the, the studies in Arizona. We've had some difficulty with the passive oxygenation. So the two issues in terms of passive oxygenation that we've noticed is that we initially are supposed to do it for the first four minutes, two rounds of CPR. And we see in quality management, we're actually going out to sometimes eight minutes and we're doing some harm there. So we don't want that to continue. Mm -hmm. In addition, the way the protocol is written at this point, we are supposed to identify respiratory patients, patients whose cardiac arrest is secondary to a respiratory component. Those patients were supposed to immediately actively work with the airway uh, and ventilate the patient. With those two difficulties, the solution we feel at this point is to actually go to immediately addressing the airway. And in those patients that obviously aren't gonna be intubated when you get there, we're gonna to go to 30 to two in terms of uh, the compressions uh, to ventilations. And that is a big switch for us. 30 to two is a habit that we'll need to establish through training. Um, what we're asking our EMTs to do when they arrive on scene is either drop a oral pharyngeal airway or a eye gel and start to ventilate that patient in coordination with the person doing compressions. But it requires the person doing compressions to communicate the end of that 30 compression cycle so that they can ventilate. The techniques that we're looking for in bagging, whether it's an eye gel or an OPA, is a three finger squeeze on the bag and it's over two seconds. That, that ventilation is delivered one, two, and then we're right back on the chest. As long as we can see the patient's chest rise during the ventilations, we're getting effective ventilations for what we need during the resuscitation. And that's a steady squeezing of the bag and then an immediate release yes. after that one, two. Yes, and we tend to want to ventilate our patients in a long, slow, full bag emptying 
type of thing, which is appropriate in some cases, but when we're in a cardiac arrest, we want to keep, again, those compression gaps down. Uh, I've seen compression gaps as, as short as two seconds with effective communication between the compressor and the airway person and a really short, quick, not quick, violently squeezing, but just a one, two on the bag. Um, two seconds is totally within reason for that. In terms of ventilation, something I would like to stress um, is hyperventilation. Just like we talked about with the uh, compressions that we tend to, when we first start, go at a very high rate, more than needed. With ventilations, that's critical that we keep to in between six and 10. I think it's written for 10. I think even as low as six is actually effective. Mm -hmm. And just to remind people, the hyperventilation part is it, it does significant damage and definitely decreases your chance of survival by de decreasing uh, the cardiac output, the flow back to the heart and then the flow out of the heart. So hyperventilation is critical. This is an attention to detail where we want to be doing this absolutely right. And again, high performance. It speaks to that mastery level um, skills performance. We, we're emphasizing in our current training cycle capnography and teaching our EMTs and our paramedics to be able to watch waveforms, to understand what the waveform is telling them, and to look at values. And part of that in our training is to let the person on the airway know that it's crucial that they're watching those waveforms. When they, especially in an eye gel, we've seen displaced eye gels where our capnography goes to zero and we lose waveform and it's gone unrecognized. Um, we're trying to teach folks to keep an eye on those numbers that you should have at least that eight to 10 or higher during effective CPR and that you do have a waveform when you're bagging with an eye gel. When we introduced end tidal CO2, basically it was for malpositioned ET tubes. Now we need to take that and now that's become second nature to us. It's mandatory, we do it on all endotracheal patients who have been endotracheally intubated patients. We need to start doing that on all these patients that have eye gels that are intubated in the field. And uh, I look forward to that being a real positive because it's, it's not that hard to, for the position of an eye gel to move and for it to become ineffective. We see that on a pretty regular basis. And the, the way you can most quickly tell that that has happened is by monitoring the end tidal CO2. Absolutely, watch, watch your CO2 numbers, watch for your waveform. And if you hear that apnea alarm, don't just silence it. I know that's a lot of our, our reflexes to make the noise go away, but understand that apnea alarm is telling you something crucial and you need to take, uh, and uh, eye gel, I think you're right, it's, it's more easily displaced than an ET tube, more often displaced. It's very easy to fix, but we have to pay attention. The next topic, airway, I think when we were discussing that, I'm very excited that we did implement the use of the eye gel. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about uh, the way the EMTs are successfully placing them and how quickly they're being placed. And I would encourage people when they get there to place the eye gel very rapidly. Because you have an eye gel placed doesn't mean later on the paramedic can't intubate the patient and address that, that later. But dealing with the eye gel and getting a good airway placed early, I think has a lot to do with it. In addition, we just kind of mentioned the transition between the BLS and the ALS mm -hmm. and the paramedic getting ready maybe potentially to do a more advanced airway. What do you see there, Brian? I see in, in the perfect world with coordination with the paramedics, we talk about them integrating their skills into the resuscitation. So if we have an EMT that's bagging at 30 to two with either an OPA or an, a well-placed eye gel, those eye gels, like you said, they're a great airway. I've run entire cardiac arrests with them and never replaced them. If you are gonna intubate, 
I would like to see the paramedic off to the side, setting up their equipment, getting ready. And then once you're ready, you have your laryngoscope in one hand and your tube in the other with either the bougie or the rigid stylet, depending on the blade you're using, and you're ready to pass a tube, then you ask that EMT to move over and assist you. They can remove that airway. Um, they can help you get set up. You place your tube. They replace the capnography, and then you can hand that off to them, and they can do continuous compressions and bag asynchronously. Um, once we get an intubated patient, that's where it pays off dividends and compressions, because then we can do compressions continuously without our gaps for ventilation. So you stress the importance of the positioning of the personnel, where they're at. What about the positioning of the equipment? Does that come into play? That's a great question. And in pit crew CPR, we had equipment tied to a riding position and a job. In high performance CPR, you have the flexibility to grab the equipment off the rig wherever it's placed. So if you're the firefighter and the monitor's on that side of the engine, carry the monitor. But if you're the compression person, that doesn't mean you have to run the monitor. It just means we want you to put it in the right place. Brian, in terms of uh, where the equipment is placed, can you give us some specific examples of what you'd like to see? Sure. When you bring the airway bag in, we want the airway bag placed near the patient's head on the left side. If you have the orange kit and you're going to be doing the IV or somebody's going to be doing the IV, if it's not your job, that's okay. We want that placed on the patient's right side down by their legs so you can get access to their femur or their tibia for an IO or you can get access to their arm for an IV. And then the monitor, we'd like to see that placed near the patient's left shoulder. Uh, the, we found with the monitor placement, the pads go on easier from that left side, and it gives the team leader the ability to see the monitor from where they're standing, and the person running the monitor can rotate into compressions with the person doing compressions initially. Um, understanding that if you do place the monitor there and you're doing compressions, that shouldn't be a person doing two jobs. Once you do compressions, somebody else has to rotate back in and run the monitor. Brian, with the complexity of the position and where you put the equipment and the whole choreography of this complex resuscitation, have we considered using checklists? Actually, we have. Um, our friends in Hilton Head, North Carolina, actually shared a checklist with us that they use for their battalion chiefs. That's um, something I think that would be a great tool for us to use, and we've been taking a look at it. Hasn't been implemented yet, but it would be sort of like a CPR command board for our, our leadership to use when they arrive on scene. Um, we're lucky enough to have the resources to send either a district chief, a battalion chief, or a, a medical district supervisor to every cardiac arrest, and it's something that they could use as a tool to just get an overview of the scene and support the team leader during a cardiac arrest. It covers everything from quality compressions to are we taking care of the family and the bystanders, and it really puts a bow on a resuscitation. Brian, thanks for all that information and all the training you're doing. It's very exciting. I think we're going to see very good results from that. Total support from the medical directors on this, uh, and great job. People might be interested where we think resuscitation may be going. I think we're in a very interesting time. There's a lot of major changes that may come. There's a lot of different things that national leaders are looking at. You may have heard of ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. There's certain parts of the country where they're doing that. Uh, and there's some exciting results there. It is a very small percentage of our resuscitations. Also recently, you probably heard of Heads Up CPR. That's getting a lot of press, uh, and we're awaiting some major studies in peer-reviewed uh, journals, so we can see how good that is. We're, we're all keeping an eye on that. Mm -hmm. Theory behind that is better blood flow to the brain and, and better drainage of the brain. Can that improve neurological outcome? So that's something else we'll be, we'll be looking at over the next year or two. 
I think the use of ultrasound, I think we're just starting to do that. And in many ways, in, in many different categories, respiratory, as you know, but in terms of cardiac arrest, I think and what we do now, looking at it in terms of TOR and whether there's cardiac squeeze or not, we're gonna spend more time uh, learning how to recognize some of the causes, like tension pneumos, et cetera. And not only the causes, but then how do we treat it? I know some of you have asked me for pericardiocentesis for 30 years now. <laughs> if you can do the ultrasound and can see the effusion, I might not be able to argue against it <laughs> right, in the future. We heard it here. <laughs> I think I mentioned previously the pulse checks on ultrasound, and I think we're gonna be able to use ultrasound to better define how good we're doing CPR, which I think will increase our chance of ROSCs. So very excited about the work uh, Jody's done with ultrasound, and I think that'll continue to, to pay uh, major dividends in terms of resuscitation. But again, I think here what's important and something we've done very well here at South Metro is just kind of a dedication, a commitment to excellence. You have to take attention to detail on all the things that you've described. And if we do that, our outcomes will get better. Brian, any final comments you would like to make? You mentioned that attention to detail, that's the high performance. We keep saying high performance. Skills mastery is crucial in this. Skills mastery leads to precision and precision is gonna lead to patients in cardiac arrest surviving that and the Seattle folks uh, and nationally they talk about your odds of surviving a cardiac arrest depend on where you live and we want this to be a place where people want to live because they know they can survive a cardiac arrest here so I think that's a, a, a really high goal uh, it's going to take a cultural change for us to get there but I know we have the energy and the talent and the resources to get there so I'm excited to see where we get in the future. Thank you for your attention. We covered a lot of material today. Please keep up your excellent work in the field and patient care. Have a happy holiday and be safe. We'll see you at the next training. Practice your CPR. Mm -hmm.